Turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going we're gonna to get into this story. This is a, well, this is a different text. It's a tough one. Uh, it's it's going to be a little serious. But I want to start with a little bit of church history. Um, not ancient history. We're not going back to the early church fathers or the Reformation. We're going to go back to the year 1995. And in the year 1995, almost 30 years ago, which um, for those of us that are my age just does not seem right. Um, in the year 1995, something happened that changed evangelical churches significantly. A movie came out. A movie starring Mel Gibson came out. And this movie, Braveheart, changed the evangelical church. Some of you have watched this movie. Some of you have not. Some of you should not watch this movie. Some of you should, perhaps. I don't know. You can debate that later. But Braveheart actually did change the evangelical church. And for those of us who were pastoring during this time, we had an obligation every Sunday in our sermon to use at least one Braveheart illustration. And I don't know what was happening at Cross of Grace Church during that time. I was not here But in 1995, 1996, 1997, until about the year 2001, every sermon had to have a Braveheart illustration. When you talked about Christian freedom, the pastor just kind of raised his fist and cried out freedom, right? Sometimes he wore the blue paint, sometimes he was in a kilt, Um, it was a little uncomfortable at times, it went a little too far, yes, quite often. Every men's group in the evangelical church was named Bravehearts. Did you guys have a Bravehearts ministry here? I would not be surprised. It was quite almost every church. That changed, just to go with the history, that changed in the year 2001 when Band of Brothers came out and the evangelical church shifted from Braveheart to Band of Brothers. And so every men's group all of a sudden became Band of Brothers, men group meeting on Friday, you know, Saturday morning for breakfast and an encouraging message. Well, back to Braveheart, though. If you remember the movie, um, and it was a long time ago um, that this movie came out, and so I know I'm dating myself, but I have no problem doing that anymore. That movie started out with, there's kind of two distinct parts in the movie Braveheart. The first half is filled with victory and triumph. It's exciting as William Wallace or Mel Gibson kind of leads the Scottish people to band together to fight off the English. They have coalitions are formed and victories are won, celebration, all kinds of, it's just an exciting, gory, but triumphant first half. But then in that movie, somewhere in the middle, something shifts. There's a betrayal and William Wallace is captured. And then, spoiler alert, he's tortured brutally and dies. And the reaction in the movie, as you watch this, is like, wait a minute, I thought this was going in one direction. If you don't know your English-Scottish history very well, you wouldn't have understood this until you watched the movie. But you're shocked. You're like, "How? this is supposed to end in triumph and victory, but here, here's the hero of the story, tortured and killed. And you kind of react, this, this isn't the way things should be going. This doesn't seem right. The Gospel of Mark actually has a similar feel. In the first half of the book of Mark, there's triumphs, there's victory, there's celebration. Jesus defeats death. He, he, he triumphs over nature. He's, he's pow- more powerful than demons. He is more powerful than illness. It's just victory after victory after victory. It's incitement. It's building up. And then somewhere in there, there's a betrayal. 
and an arrest. And now, we're going to see in this passage, a trial and eventually torture and, spoiler alert, death. With one crucial difference between the story of William Wallace and the story of Jesus of Nazareth, death for one is not the end. Spoiler alert, there's a resurrection coming. But in the Gospel of Mark, as you're kind of tracking with this, there's a similar trajectory. You just kind of feel this isn't the way it should be. Why is Jesus the one who can defeat death on trial for his life? Why is Jesus the one who can heal being tortured? Why is Jesus the one who can cast out demons accused of blasphemy? But maybe in the back of your mind, you're thinking, wait a second, there was a verse, chapter 10, verse 45, we memorized it a few months ago. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life. That's what's happening now in Mark as we move towards the end of the book. And we'll be in Mark for the next, I think, five weeks as we wrap up this series in the Gospel of Mark. Before I I read the actual text this morning, I want you to imagine that you have never heard the story of Jesus. This is the first time that you've ever heard about this Jesus guy who was from Nazareth in Galilee. Maybe your friend in Rome, first century friend. You're, You're a first century guy in Rome. Your friend has invited you to a dinner party in his courtyard in the Roman suburbs. After a nice dinner, a dozen of you or so are lounging around the courtyard. You're enjoying a beverage. There's some figs, some nuts to enjoy. And your friend invites you to listen to a tale. And for the next hour and a half, you listen with rapt attention as you hear about a man from Nazareth named Jesus. And the story seems almost too good to be true. Could anyone be that powerful? And how could someone with such power have compassion? That's not how Romans function. Politicians and soldiers don't wield their power to serve. This Jesus can seemingly do anything, but for some inexplicable reason, as you listen to the story, he doesn't want his true identity as the Son of God known, even though you get it as you read this story, as you hear the story. But now the tone of the story has taken a dramatic turn. No longer are there fantastic miracles and crowds thronging around Jesus. Jesus has been arrested. And as we saw a few weeks ago, he has been abandoned. And now we move in chapter 14 and verse 35 into a trial scene. Trial scenes are intense in movies, in TV. Uh, I mean, filmmakers and Television makers love trial scenes. Podcasters love to talk about trials. Trial scenes are intense. There's just a um, curiosity about them, I think, sometimes. And it's just this this weight of the trial is always there. It's a drama. It's a significant drama. There's a reason TV and film love the courtroom scene, because it just keeps us on the edge of our seat. What will happen? And so movies like A Few Good Men or To Kill a Mockingbird just keep you in that trial mode. Is this man guilty or innocent? What has happened here? Movies like Law and Order or my favorite, Matlock, of course, um, they just just thrive in that trial scene. All kinds of films and TVs kind of capitalize on this trial. Trials become the pivotal point, the turning point in a story. Will this person be convicted or will they be released? Is this person guilty or are they innocent? Will they face freedom, you know, freedom, 
or will they be punished? That trial puts us in that moment, that moment of wondering what will happen. And that's where we're at in Mark chapter 14, verse 35. So remember, you've never heard the story of Jesus. You're sitting there, comfortable, listening, and it's intense right now. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl said to him, saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. Father, this is a heavy story. We like the triumphant miracles sometimes more than hearing of Jesus alone, falsely accused, and wrongly convicted. There's a sadness to this story as we see Peter and maybe feel ourselves in his shoes as well. Would you direct our thoughts and minds to Jesus, the faithful one, this morning? Encourage us because of his faithfulness. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, it took an ominous tone, didn't it? It kind of got dark there for a while. You notice in this passage that there's really two trials going on. And in the title of the sermon, I put trials in scare quotes because neither one of them really is a legitimate trial. 
Jesus faces kind of this sham trial, this, this uh, mock courtroom that quickly assembled, faces the high priest, though, and the whole council is there. Everybody, and Mark emphasizes this, all the elders are there. All the scribes are there. It's this throng of people against Jesus packed into the high priest's home, and Jesus is on, quote-unquote, trial for his life. In the end, he remains faithful to his mission, to his identity. The other trial is a little different. Peter, in the courtyard, kind of below the room maybe, out and he's warming himself by the fire comfortably while Jesus is uncomfortably facing his trial. And a simple little servant girl comes up to him and starts to accuse him. And he tries to get away. He tried to run away, tries to find a way. She's kind of following him. I think you're with him. And three times, Peter, facing not powerful trial, uh, not, not powerful figures like Jesus faced, but facing a simple servant girl. Peter's not on trial for his life. He's perhaps set up for some minor embarrassment and some relational inconvenience. But Peter, unlike Jesus, who remains faithful, Peter denies association with Jesus. Peter, the one who said, I will never do it. Though everyone else falls away, I won't do it. Peter, the one who three times says, I don't know who in the world that guy is. I'm just maybe here to get a little warm because it's chilly out tonight. Mark's readers, as they encountered, and Mark's hearers, as they would encounter this story, would have likely soon faced similar trials to that of Jesus or maybe Peter. Some of them would face minor accusations like Peter. Are you a Christian? You're one of those Christians, aren't you? Uh, you, actually, you actually take that stuff seriously? You really believe that? Stuff about this Jesus guy? You think he rose from the dead? Some of, the, some of Mark's hearers would have faced those sorts of accusations in the marketplace, in their neighborhoods. And Mark wants them to see these two scenarios side by side so that they're ready to face these sorts of accusations. Shortly after this was written, perhaps, others of Mark's hearers would have faced major threats to their life. Recant. Rebuke Jesus. Or we release the lions. This would have been the situation for Mark's original hearers. I have never, and likely, and Lord willing, won't have my life threatened for being a Christian. Um, I grew up in kind of a scare culture in the 1980s and early 1990s of youth ministry, and we talked about that scenario a lot, but I have yet to face anything close to being um, uh, a life or death situation for my faith. I do, however, work with many who regularly face this, though. It's currently happening around the world, in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in China, in Pakistan, Iran, and many other countries of the globe. Christians are on trial for their life. Sometimes those trials follow some level of legal code, and sometimes they do not. So while I've never had my life threatened for being a Christian, I have had inquiries to my faith that were a little hostile, and most of you have probably had this as well. I remember a high school teacher at one point saying, wait a minute, you really believe that stuff in the Bible happened? You really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish and lived there for three days? Like in shock and disbelief. I've had classmates in college and, uh, and in high school just say, wait a minute, you're really trying to follow that stuff? Like, you're not just playing along, you're not just doing it because your parents say to do it? Like, you, t you take that seriously? With some, 
My answer has exhibited courage and boldness and faith. I am a Christian. And with others, to my shame, I've wilted under pressure and masked my association with Jesus. I have looked like Peter more than faithful Jesus quite often. Mark is preparing his readers to face opposition, to face questions, sometimes with the threat of embarrassment and inconvenience looming, and sometimes with the threat of death looming over them. Will they cower like Peter and run away with their tail between their legs, or will they honestly, even at the cost of their lives, say, I'm with Jesus, I am a Christian? Throughout church history, there's plenty of stories of those who have boldly claimed the name of Christ, even to the point of death. One of those was a man named Polycarp of Smyrna. This is kind of a church history moment as well here we're going to get into. Polycarp, who people, for some inexplicable reason, have stopped naming their children after, Polycarp is regarded as saying, on the day of his death, 80 and 6 years I have served Jesus and he has done me no wrong. How, can then I, how then can I blaspheme my King and Savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And so Polycarp was burned at the stake and pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. And on his farewell, Polycarp said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Holy cow, that's amazing, right? Like how? That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Thomas Cramner, the uh, Protestant archbishop, on the day of his execution, Cramner was led into a church, and when it was his turn to speak, he drew out a piece of paper and began to read. Cranmer had earlier recanted some of his beliefs and signed, his doc- signed documents saying he was wrong. But when it came time, he began to read this piece of paper. He thanked the people for their prayers and then said, I come to the great thing that troubleth my conscience more than any other thing that I ever said or did in my life. And referring to the recantations he had signed, he blurted out, all such bills which I have written or signed with my own hand are untrue. Cranmer was then immediately dragged from the stage and out to the stake. The fire was kindled and quickly the flame leapt up. Cranmer stretched out his right hand, which he had signed these documents with, into the flame and held it there as he said, this hand hath offended. Only once did he withdraw it to wipe his face, and then he returned it until he had burned his hand to a stump, praying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He then died. Wow. <laughs> like, that's, that's amazing, isn't it? Polycarp, Cranmer, and a host of others today, thousands of years ago, have gone to their death and boldly proclaimed Jesus Christ unflinchingly. And then there are people like seventh grade Josh Montague, fresh in the meat grinder of Perry Public Schools after an elementary education exclusively in the happy little bubble of Perry Baptist School, being asked, you're really a Christian? You buy that stuff? I stretched out my hand into the fight. No. (laughs) I wilted under the pressure denied Christ. 
20-year-old Josh Montague, fresh on the campus of Michigan State University after a year and a half at Kelvin College, a private Christian school. Wait, you, you actually go to church on Sunday mornings? You care about that kind of stuff? Kind of, not really. To my shame, my answers have resembled Peter as often as they've resembled Jesus. Rather than a bold, honest I am, yes, I have answered kind of, or not really, or tried to change the subject. I have times of boldness and courage in my life, and I have times of cowardice and weakness in my life, and most of you, I'm guessing, are similar. Peter had made the bold claims. Back in 1429, he had said, even though they all fall away, I will not. And now Peter now stands as the only one actively denying any association with Jesus. Seventh grade Josh, 20-year-old Josh, and bold Peter wilted under pressure. But Jesus never denied his identity or mission, despite great cost. Listen, for those of you like me who have wilted under pressure, even in our unfaithful cowardice, we have a Savior who faithfully faced suffering and death on our behalf and for our salvation. When we are unfaithful, Jesus remains faithful. Don't miss that in this text. Sometimes we see ourselves in Peter and devastating. See Jesus here, faithfully going to his suffering on your behalf. When we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. So whether it's sin or cowardice, we have a faithful Savior and King in Jesus whose boldness and faithfulness is gifted to us so that we can now boldly stand before the throne of God and stand before the accusations and inquiries of men and say with deep gratitude now and confidence, I am with Christ. So for us cowards, we have a substitute who was faithful to the point of death so that his righteousness could be gifted to us and our sin could be forgiven. We are now in him. His faithfulness applies to us, and he is in us. At the end of the book of Mark, in contrast to, the, to Peter the coward, a Roman centurion, at likely great cost, looked at the suffering crucified Jesus and said, truly, this was the Son of God. May we say that. May we proclaim Jesus like the centurion. But when we wilt... Remember, our Savior did not. He was faithful. So let's go back to our text now. There's two things I think that Mark wants to emphasize in this passage, 1435 to 72. Two things that are happening to Jesus in particular, and putting these two stories next to each other emphasizes these in even greater significance and weight. The first thing that Mark wants to emphasize is that Jesus is abandoned. He is alone. Despite his popularity throughout the book of Mark, and we have seen throngs, thousands of people gather around Jesus and follow Jesus, Jesus can't get away from people through much of the book of Mark. And now he stands with no friends, no followers by his side. Jesus is abandoned despite his popularity and despite the professed commitments of, the, of his followers. Jesus stands alone. And Mark has shown the disciples run away. Uh, over the last few paragraphs in his book, Mark has shown that Jesus is now alone, and now Jesus goes to his trial with no defense attorney, 
with no family standing behind him, with no friends at his side, Jesus is abandoned. People have betrayed him, people have left him, and now people are even going to deny association with him. Jesus is alone. For a moment, we think, well, maybe Peter will, will, will remain faithful. As you read this text, you may have, you may, maybe Peter will stay faithful. In verse 54, you see Jesus has been brought into the trial, and Peter had followed him at a distance. So he's not right there beside him, but he's at least kind of in proximity, right? right in the, he's in the courtyard of the high priest, and he's sitting with the guards and warming himself in the fire. Maybe Peter will remain faithful. And then Mark quickly slams that door shut on you and shows you that Peter denied Jesus. Will he honor his commitment? No, not even close. No one. No one stands by Jesus here. Many witnesses come against Jesus. So it's not just that Jesus is alone. He has throngs of people now opposing him, falsely accusing him. There's no witnesses for the defense, but plenty of witnesses for the prosecution here. Previously thronged by crowds, Jesus now stands alone, and he suffers alone. Accusations are hurled at him. He's, he's anti-temple. He's against our religious system. He, he hates the temple. He's going to destroy it. There's the anger of the priest even exemplified as they hear Jesus talk. They rip their garments to shreds. He's convicted. He's condemned to death. He's beaten. He's mocked alone. Jesus faces his suffering alone. So remember that. That's the first thing that Mark wants you to understand is that Jesus has been abandoned here, that Jesus is alone. But there's more. The second thing I think Mark wants you to understand is that, that Jesus has been arrested, but he's also innocent. Jesus is arrested, he's on trial, but he's innocent, and he's, he's divine. He's, he is God in flesh. We've seen that throughout Mark, that Jesus is God, and yet here he is, like a common criminal in court. Despite his innocence, despite his divinity, Jesus is arrested. Often guilty evildoers will face conviction alone. There's always that scene in courtroom where it just feels like that guy who's getting the pronouncement of guilty is alone, is desperately alone. It's hard to see sometimes, but for an innocent person who we know to be beautiful and compassionate and powerful throughout the mark. We've seen that for an innocent, powerful, and compassionate man to face this suffering, to face this trial alone is a travesty. And Jesus isn't just innocent. He is innocent, yes, but he's the son of God. He is perfectly holy. Mark has evidenced this throughout his book. Jesus is divine. God himself is among his people in the person of Jesus Christ and is now on trial for his life. There's an absurdity to that concept. The judge of the universe is on trial for his life. It's mind-blowing. And Mark goes and shows evidence of Jesus' innocence. I mean, first, if you understand uh, or do a little research on, on trials in that day, you know that this was a sham trial from the get-go. And there are many things that, 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 are, that evidence that. It's held during Passover, which was forbidden according to Jewish law. Jesus is tried at night in the high priest's home. It should have been tried during the day in the official court of the Sanhedrin. So it's not in the right location. The sentence is pronounced immediately where there should have been some deliberation according to the Jewish law. 
there's no real testimony against the accused. You see, in 1455, they found no testimony. They're looking for witnesses, and no one can actually find anything to come against Jesus. So they drum up some false witnesses. They say things in 1458, you see that, they say, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. If you actually go back to what Jesus said in 13.2, Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The testimony was a little suspicious here. The accusation doesn't match what Jesus actually said in the book of Mark. False witnesses then, as they are compounded in Jesus' trial, the false witnesses don't even agree. You see that in verse 56. Their testimony did not agree. So they bring up one witness, he says something, they bring up another witness, and like, uh, well, it's, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. According to Jewish law, the witnesses must agree for someone to be guilty. Finally, in frustration perhaps, the high priest says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That, that term blessed is what the priest would have used as a replacement word for, for God. And his question matches the title of Mark's book back in 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus answered, I am. At that point, if they had records playing in the background, the record would have scratched. <laughs> because Jesus just said something. It's not crystal clear that he's using the name of Yahweh there, but there's a hint in that. That I am statement is a divine name from God, or divine name for God, and Jesus uses some similar language there. But if that was unclear, he goes on and says, You will see the Son of Man, a term for the Messiah in the book of Daniel, which these uh, these religious leaders would have known quite well, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, at the right hand of the Mighty One, at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice here that Jesus doesn't use the name of God in any form. That would have opened him up to a, perhaps a, a legitimate charge of blasphemy. But Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God coming with the clouds of heaven, this image of the Messiah, this image of God's anointed one. Jesus is the real and divine judge. Well, this kangaroo court trumps up false accusations and convictions. Jesus makes his confession. I am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And as soon as that's said, the garments start being torn while he's on trial, Jesus says he's coming as judge. Here's the thing, though. It's not blasphemy if it's true. It's true. Jesus, though, was found guilty for something that is true of his identity. So, let's ask a couple big questions. Mark has gone through some work in his writing to show us that Jesus was alone and that Jesus was innocent. Why? Why did the innocent Messiah, the Son of God, willingly face suffering? Here's the answer. The innocent suffered so the guilty could be forgiven. Here's the difficult truth for us. We're guilty. We're guilty. Paul says it quite clearly in Romans. All have sinned. Who has sinned? All. All have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. We're guilty. We stand condemned. That's the difficult truth. The beautiful truth is that if you're in Christ, you are forgiven. His innocence is applied to you, is gifted to you as you put your faith in him. Why did the innocent Messiah, the Son of God, willingly face suffering? Jesus, the innocent, suffered so that the guilty could be forgiven. Praise be to God. Why did the Messiah suffer alone? Jesus suffered alone so that his people would never be alone. Recently, Harvard came out with a study on loneliness, and in that survey of American adults, 36% of respondents reported serious loneliness, feeling lonely frequently or almost all the time or all the time in the four weeks prior to the survey. This included 61% of young people aged 18 to 25 and 51% of mothers with young children. 43% of young adults reported increases in loneliness since the outbreak of the pandemic. About half of lonely young adults in in the survey reported that no one in the past few weeks had taken more than just a few minutes to ask how they were doing in a way that made them feel like the person genuinely cared. Young adults suffer high rates of both loneliness and anxiety and depression. According to a recent CDC survey, 63% of this age group are suffering significant symptoms of anxiety or depression often related to loneliness. Here's another beautiful truth, though. If you are in Christ, you are never alone. Jesus was alone in his suffering, but if you are in Christ, you are never alone. Jesus faced his suffering alone so that you wouldn't have to. God is with you. His Spirit is with his church. And God has placed you in community. There's something beautiful about this community. I was at the prayer retreat. It's just, I'm not alone. Praise God for that. Jesus suffered alone so that you don't have to go through your suffering alone. You are never alone. That's true because God is with you in his spirit, yes. But it's also true because the body of Christ is surrounding you right now. And so I'm going to do something really uncomfortable for you guys. And I'm going to do it because I'm up here and I can have you guys do it and not have to participate in this. Um, I'm going to participate, though. You are not alone. Take a moment here and realize that. I want you to turn and lock eyes with someone. Just find somebody and just give a little nod or a thumbs up or something like that. Maybe across the room. Just find people and realize that you are not alone. We're with each other. Christ is with his people, and his people are together. We are not alone. There's something beautiful about this community. If you're kind of feeling like, oh, I feel alone a lot, just call anyone here, and we will be with you. We're with each other here. The Lord is good, and we are not alone, unlike Jesus, who faced his suffering alone so that we would never have to be. Jesus stood innocent and alone to face the wrath of men towards him, and eventually he would face the wrath of God towards sin so that we would never have to stand alone or condemned. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, you are innocent. 
Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Because we are neither abandoned nor condemned, but our Savior was abandoned and condemned, we can and should boldly stand together for Jesus Christ. Christ has saved us. He has forgiven us through his work on the cross, and he, we are not alone. So now we say with enthusiasm to Chaska and Carver County and the Minneapolis area and wherever we are, truly this was the Son of God. We boldly say that. And we will fail again. We will resemble Peter from time to time. We will wilt under pressure. Remember Jesus, who did not, who faithfully, faithfully went to the cross on our behalf. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess our weakness. We see ourselves in Peter. We want ease rather than confrontation. We want people to like us rather than accuse us. And so we have and will, because of our sin, because of our cowardice, we have denied you. Forgive us, Father. And help our eyes to turn to Jesus, who did not deny you, who remained faithful despite great cost, despite his death, so that, so that we could be forgiven, and who went through that alone so that we would never have to be. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your gift of forgiveness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.